Welcome to The Term, a podcast about the Supreme Court by Law360. I'm Natalie Rodriguez. Joining me is Supreme Court reporter Jimmy Hoover. Hey, Jimmy, how's it going? Oh, it's going pretty well. You know, it is Supreme Court opinion season, obviously, as we've talked about on the show. We've got some more to dig into this week, but it's also college grad and law school grad season, which means that so the justices... Yeah, it means that the justices on the Supreme Court are hitting the commencement speaker circuit, but this time it's a little bit different, what with the pandemic and everything. Yeah, I've noticed that um, they're still doing many of them virtually, or at least some sort of hybrid, like <laughs> virtual, plus, you know, some students in person for, for commencements. Um, so the justices definitely have more options, I feel, to, to be able to hit the circuit since they can do it from, you know, their own home, basically. Right. Yeah. They don't have to fly all over the country, up and down the coasts to give these little five minute speeches. I wonder if maybe the justices would even consider going on like one of the, have you ever heard of the app Cameo where you can like hire celebrities to give you messages? I mean, is that how these guys are getting booked these days? I don't even know. What would their going rate be? Like some, <laughs> some celebrities take like, you know, big bucks for that, right? Probably pretty competitive. Uh, so Justice Sotomayor uh, spoke to uh, graduates at Yale Law School. She's a graduate there. It was a uh, uh, virtual address, obviously. But I was kind of struck by maybe a little bit of the less than enthusiastic tone. <laughs> and this was kind of a theme. Um, she told graduates that uh, their legal careers will be challenging and advised them not to give up hope and said that uh, graduates are entering legal careers with enormous college debt at a time when there are fewer job opportunities. She also noted that lawyers are less respected today than in the past. Obviously, you know, we're, we're <laughs> I mean, she's not really she's riling being, up the crowd here. She's being honest. <laughs> true, true, and honesty is a virtue. Um, but she told graduates to draw inspiration from lawyers who they admire, uh, past justices like Thurgood Marshall and Ruth Bader Ginsburg, and said that many of today's attorneys are doing uh, notable work in the criminal justice reform sphere, electoral equality, so kind of ending on a, a bit of a, a bright note. Chief Justice Roberts was also on the speaking circuit, right? He uh, addressed graduates of uh, Georgetown University Law Center in a, a virtual speech. It was a pretty short one, uh, but again, <laughs> it kind of a somber note telling graduates right off the bat that he had some bad news and that the profession you have chosen to enter, quote, does not always day in and day out offer the most interesting work. As Daniel Webster put it, he, he continues, if you would be a great lawyer, you must first consent to being a great judge. And he encourages lawyers um, these new graduates through the, quote, tedious and monotonous legal work that they find themselves in. <laughs> Did I he mean, really say tedious and monotonous? I quote tedious and monotonous legal work. Remember that you are serving a higher calling. So I would just say, thank goodness they're addressing law school graduates and not, you know, potentially people considering law school because I don't know <laughs> that they'd be lining up their applications. Yeah, I guess I guess for the graduates, they've kind of, you know, made their bet on on where they're headed. for the, I know. Does graduation. someone need to check in on the Supreme Court justices to make sure to they're say, feeling okay? You know what? It's it's a it's we're about midway through the commencement season, I think. So we'll see if maybe some of the other justices take a, a perhaps lighter note um, in future co commencements. Right. Um, speaking of being midway through the season, we are also, I think, just about passing the halfway point in terms of opinions this term. Uh, we had some more opinions this week that we're going to be talking about. On Monday, 
the court handed down a decision in an immigration case. Um, this was another unanimous decision of as we've seen a lot of those as the court has been kind of getting rid of what I like to think of as kind of the low-hanging fruit where there's a lot of uh, unanimity and um, these are less controversial cases that are having that do more to do with you know strict reading of readings of statutes. In this case, United States versus Palomar Santiago. It was a unanimous decision written by Justice Sotomayor um, in which the Supreme Court made it harder for immigrants charged with unlawful reentry to challenge their underlying deportation orders. So the, to challenge the reasons they were deported the first time rather than the unlawful reentry, correct? Exactly. It's called a collateral um, challenge on the original removal orders. Uh, which basically means that after someone's been picked up for illegal re-entry, they um, get an opportunity to tell a court, um, tell a judge why they shouldn't have been deported in the first place. And the Supreme Court basically laid out um, three criteria that um, uh, uh, immigrants charged with unlawful re-entry have to meet in order to qualify, in, in, in order to be able to collaterally attack those underlying Removal orders, this was a ruling against Mexican national Refugio Palomar Santiago, who was picked up for illegal reentry um, after being deported for a DUI conviction in California in 1998. So he had sought to challenge his original removal from the country because the Supreme Court has, in the sense, in the time since he was originally de- reported or deported, has ruled that DUI offenses do not require deportation. Okay, so he wants a second look at it because if it happened today, he wouldn't have been deported the first time around. Exactly. And Sotomayor explains in her unanimous decision for the court that to bring such a collateral attack on his underlying deportation, immigration law actually requires him to meet those three criteria that I talked about. First is that he has to have exhausted his administrative remedies. Um, Second, that he has to show that he had had no judicial review the first time around. And finally, that his deportation was fundamentally unfair. So the Ninth Circuit below held that Palomar Santiago didn't actually have to meet those first two uh, criteria that I just mentioned because his removal was premised on a conviction that was later found not to be a removable offense. But Justice Sotomayor says that the law here um, does not actually provide for such an exception. So what's the impact here for for both Palomar Santiago and for other immigrants in his similar situation. Well, Palomar Santiago's lawyer didn't uh, turn a request for comment um, to Law 360, so it's not clear what these new requirements on him mean for his particular uh, case, whether he he will uh, have an opportunity to establish that he meets those three criteria to challenge his underlying removal. But immigration attorneys told uh, Law 360's Sarah Betancourt, uh, our immigration reporter, uh, that the ruling poses new hurdles for thousands of uh, lawful permanent residents who say they were stripped of their green cards based on illegal deportation orders over, you know, going back decades. But there was another ruling on Monday. Do you want to break that down for us, Natalie? Yeah. So also on Monday, uh, there was the justices decided this relatively, I would say, small under the radar case um, that is actually going to give, I think, lawyers working on super fun deals a lot more to think about and frankly stress about. <laughs> and super fun deals are what exactly to the uninitiated so so super fund um sites are you know sites where there is a heck of a lot of pollution (laughs) um and someone's got to clean it up and someone's on you know the hook for the money of the cleanup and you know a lot of times these end up being uh deals with the government and whatever 
party in this this case is a territory guam in other cases it can be a corporation or whoever's kind of the landowner of um where this super fund is you know to to negotiate you know who's on the hook for what right okay so on monday um the court basically revived a 160 million dollar lawsuit that guam had brought against the navy over pollution costs um at a landfill on the island uh just real broad strokes there had been a previous deal like the one i just kind of mentioned with the government and the navy um and you know the navy thought it was you know in the clear from claims and for (laughs) for for money but the justices were basically like nah sorry deal was too narrow you didn't cover these new claims that guam's come up with um and this ruling you know is really going to impact how attorneys on these super fun deals negotiate as our senior environmental reporter um juan carlos rodriguez recently wrote about so tell me a bit about this particular Superfund site. Um, what what were these claims against the Navy? Uh, what what was the pollution at issue? Yeah. So at the heart of this uh, suit is a Superfund site where the Navy had dumped municipal and military waste. You know, really toxic stuff like Agent Orange and DDT um, at a dump on the island for over a decade, starting before World War II. Again, these are usually things that you know Superfund issues are, are usually things that have, you know, taken decades to kind of come up and bubble up to to the fore here. So Guam actually later used that uh, dump as a its own municipal landfill. And the government, federal government was like, uh, you did not remotely, you know, put in environmental safeguards before you started doing that. And that's an issue. So in 2004, Guam entered into a consent decree, essentially a deal a settlement with the federal government um, under the Clean Water Act. Uh, agreeing to place a cover on the dump to stop pollution charges. So the Clean Water Act is a kind of the hinge here, right? They 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 did it to um, escape certain claims under the Clean Water Act. Guam sued the Navy in 2017 under a different act, the Comprehensive Environmental Response Compensation and Liability Act. And if you're anything like me, you know it better as CERCLA. Right. <laughs> uh, <laughs> so under the CERCLA Act, uh, they, 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 they sued the Navy and they were trying to get the military to, you know, cover all or at least part of the $160 million cleanup tab for this. I site. assume I assume it wasn't enough to just, you know, throw a big tarp all <laughs> over this thing and call it a day. I suppose there was no. some more cleanup costs involved that they were trying to get. Exactly. So, you know, the suit comes up. The D.C. Circuit was like, wait, your 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 circle claims are barred because of this 2004 settlement with the federal government. Um, but on Monday, in a unanimous decision, also uh, kind of as you were saying, Jimmy, I think they're trying to clear the docket over the the of the cases they can easily agree on. Um, in a unanimous a decision with the opinion written by Justice Thomas, uh the justices basically said, you know, Guam isn't barred from seeking money from the federal government under CERCLA. The three-year, the, a three-year clock uh, that was not started uh, by the 2004 deal, and so the the you know the litigation will live on. And I think Superfund lawyer uh, lawyers working on Superfund deals uh, have a lot more to think about. That is really interesting, and I know that these cases do wind themselves through the through the litigation system for years. So that's. I guess no surprise there. Um, so it was a pretty quiet uh, orders list on Monday handed down. There were no new cases taken up. Um, in fact, there were lots of cert denials as uh, per usual. And among them, I wanted to talk about one case uh, that was turned away by the court called Johnson versus Presith um, out of Missouri that uh, sparked some uh, like a notable pair of dissents from 
the three liberal justices on the court. So in this case, the Supreme Court denied an appeal from a Missouri death row inmate saying that the state's plan to execute him by lethal injection will cause him severe pain as a result of epilepsy that was caused by his brain, his own brain tumor and also damage from a brain surgery. So the defendant in the case, Ernest Johnson, who was sentenced to death for the murder of three gas station clerks um, during a robbery 27 years ago, Ernest Johnson had sought to pursue execution by firing squad as an alternative to the state's lethal injection protocol of administering pentoarbital. That's the, the lethal injection chemical that they use, um, which Johnson and again says it would be excruciatingly painful if it were to go through because of his health conditions. Yeah, we've, we've seen uh, over the years a lot of cases and, and, and reports um, that pentobarbital and, and, and some other similar drugs, you know, they don't always go as planned. Um, you know, when the execution goes forward and that there are, you know, sometimes some severe reactions to it. Right. And I think this is a clear case of that when you have a defendant who's actually seeking, you know, death by firing squad, which is, you know, to the layperson, probably something that is a little bit shocking. Um, But it just goes to show that there really is no kind of painless or, you know, uh, seamless method of execution here. Um, But the Supreme Court rejected the petition with no explanation, which triggered, like I said, a dissent from the three liberal justices. Justice Sotomayor writes um, her own dissent that says, Missouri is, quote, now free to execute Johnson in a manner that at this stage of the litigation, we must assume will be akin to torture given his unique medical condition. Uh, Justice Breyer, in a dissent of his own, he's long voiced his um, hostility and opposition uh, to the death penalty as it's come to be implemented um, in modern America and says that it's one more example of the special difficulties that the death penalty, as currently administered, uh, creates for the just application of law. So, So what was some of the background to kind of how we got here to this stage? Right. So Johnson had previously sought the use of nitrogen gas as an alternative to pentobarbital, um, but that avenue was actually foreclosed in a recent uh, Supreme Court death penalty decision, um, which uh, where the Supreme Court rejected an effort by another death row inmate to use nitrogen gas as an alternative uh, because the Supreme Court held that the state could decline to use nitrogen gas because of its uh, because it lacks a track record of successful use. So Johnson facing this um, new Supreme Court ruling that kind of cuts off that avenue for him, then um, seeks to amend his complaint to seek execution by firing squad, a request that was denied. Um, Sotomayor points out that the firing squad actually has a long history of successful use, if not in Missouri itself, which I think hasn't used the firing squad as a method of execution since the 19th century. Um, But she says that this is the second time that Missouri is now opposing an alternative method of execution that it previously held was indeed an option, uh, which Sotomayor says questions whether, quote, Missouri intends to allow for any alternatives to its lethal injection protocol, even if pentobarbital will cause constitutionally intolerable pain. So this is the latest development on the Supreme Court's death penalty docket, usually an area where we see some, you know, heightened, uh, you know, emotional writing by the justices as they kind of grapple over this uh, literally life and death issue. So that wraps us up for the big news of this week. Uh, Jimmy, I know you and I, though, have been speaking off air about another topic that I think our listeners would be interested in, uh, the Solicitor General's office. 
<laughs> right. What is going on at the Solicitor General's office? It's what now is going been, on? It's now been four months, over four months, uh, since President Joe Biden tapped Elizabeth Prelogger as acting Solicitor General, and we still do not have a full-time permanent nominee for the position, which is a pretty important position. Yeah, and I'm a little surprised because I've been seeing nominations roll through this week. Uh, you know, acting attorney, uh, I should say assistant attorney general here or, you know, DOE counsel. Like, uh, there's been a lot of nominations this week, but I haven't seen anything so far for the Solicitor General's office. What do you think is taking so long? I wish I could say. <laughs> there could be an infinite combination of possibilities going on. It could be, you know, a, a debate over who this nominee will be between maybe members of the White House and maybe Attorney General Merrick Garland. It could be, um, you know, they've, they've selected someone who's still kind of wrapping up their private practice. It could be um, that they're actually planning to renominate um, Prelogger for the full-time position and perhaps waiting for the end of the current Supreme Court term when she will, obviously, if she's nominated again, she'll have to relinquish her acting title and someone else will have to fill in that role. So potentially they're waiting for the end of the term there. That's at least what one um, very well-informed, well, I should I say. I can see that. That makes sense from a practical you know, right. standpoint. Right. And I think it's worth talking about because it's, it is so unusual that it's taken so long. Um, I talked to one a uh, member of the SCOTUS bar who said that, you know, in her decade plus of of, of being in the bar, she can't remember uh, a vacancy this long for a full-time um, solicitor general. These are very important positions. It's the face of the federal government in um, before the Supreme Court. Uh, they shape administration policy in legal battles, not just at the Supreme Court, but also in the lower levels as well. Um, so we will be watching closely to see any trickles of information coming out of the White House or potentially for the nomination announcement. Um, so potentially that could be happening pretty soon. We'll keep an eye out. Lots on our radar for, for the next few few weeks, I, th- I feel. To say nothing of opinions, right? <laughs> <laughs> well, I think that just about wraps us up for this week. As always, great chatting. We missed you last week. Well, it's great to be back. Um, and uh, I thought you guys did a great job. We'd like to thank our producer, Stephen Trader, and our executive producer, Amber McKinney. Contributing reporters this week, Juan Carlos Rodriguez and Sarah Betancourt. Music for the show comes from Slender Beats. And for more information about all the high court action, go to law360.com slash the term. You can also find us anywhere you listen to podcasts. Just search Law360 in the term. <laughs>